Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have loved to have? Uh, wouldn't you love to uh, have half an hour to be in the church at Corinth? To be, you know, a time machine and go back and see what they were doing. It, uh, yeah, it, because there's, there's there's things we can infer from these passages about what was going on there, but it would have been really nice to actually see what was happening. Um, we're we're in the middle of this. Uh, this series on, or not in the middle, we're getting towards the end now of the, the series on 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and we're in this bit, at the end of this bit of chapter 12 to 14 on spiritual gifts. Uh, the, these three chapters deal almost entirely with, with that subject. And if I had, had to summarise the message that, um, that these three chapters are, I would say something like this. That gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to all members of the church so that the church will be encouraged and built up. But if we use spiritual gifts uh, for show, to show off or to, um, to raise our own status, then, uh, then we're wasting our time. We, we, it's worse than useless to use those gifts. That, that's kind of the uh, summary of what these three chapters are about. Uh, and that's why... In the middle of, between, between chapter 12 and 14, obviously, is chapter 13. Uh, you know, what, what's going on there, though, the famous chapter on love? Did Paul have a, a brain fade and suddenly forget what he was talking about or something, or write something different? Well, no, it's because that's part of this whole thing, where he's saying, unless you use these gifts in love, you're wasting your time. You're, you're just wasting your breath. Uh, you may as well not even be there. You know, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You ever notice the uh, cymbals player in a, in a symphony, symphony orchestra? You know, the poor guy has to stand there for probably 95% of the time and just hold his cymbals and do nothing. Uh, you know, sometimes he might just slowly, slightly touch them together. But just every now and again in, in some symphonies is bang, bang, bang. But imagine if he did that. He decided, well, I've had enough of this, and he just started playing flat out all the time. That, that, that is that's what Paul is saying here. That is what it was, is like if you exercise these gifts without love. You're just like a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mystery and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, then I am nothing. So that's why he's got this chapter on love. But now we're, uh, we're into the second part of chapter 14. Uh, last week, uh, Paul seemed to be having a, uh, and in today's reading as well, he seemed to be having a particular dig at those who were showing off their gift of tongues in the church. Uh, you know, when I first became a Christian, uh, somebody pointed out to me and Shelley uh, this uh, verse in, uh, uh, in verse 5 there, uh, which says, um, uh, you know, I want you all to speak in tongues. That was it. You know, I want you all to speak in tongues. So, so therefore, you must speak in tongues. Uh, that, that, that was basically what we were told. You know, being a, a babe in the faith, I didn't bother to, to read the rest of what it says in that chapter. Uh, and in fact, in that same line, Paul goes on to say, even more, I want you to prophesy. Because that, is, that is far more useful to the church. Now, Look, one of the problems we have with all of these gifts, or not all of them, but most of these gifts, 
is that nowhere are we actually told what they are. There's no description of them. You know, we all, when Paul talks about the gift of tongues, we all think we know what he's talking about, but, but do we? We're not told what they are. And the same with prophecy. We're not, we're not actually told what, it, what this sort of prophecy is. We, like John said last week, that it doesn't appear to be like the Old Testament prophet, which was a, an actual office where God appointed a prophet and everything he said was the word of God. Uh, not to be questioned and, and, and of course large tracts of that are recorded for us in scripture so it wasn't like that uh, it, but it, nonetheless it did, does appear to be speaking a message from God but in a way that, that is not, does not carry that same authority that the Old Testament uh, prophets carried and so Paul adds a very important instruction in verse 29 that the rest of us sort of non-prophesying riffraff in the pews, we have, to, we have to weigh what is said because it may not actually be, be right. It may not be from God. Does it line up with scripture? Is it likely to be from God? That, that, that is our part and it's a very important part. We must weigh what is said. The implication is that just because someone claims to be speaking God's word, uh, it doesn't mean that they actually are. We must weigh it. We must see. Try it in the balance. Is it likely to be from the Lord or is it found wanting? And, and even then, if it is true, if it is from God, what should we do with it? Like John gave the, the example last week of Agabus and Paul, where Agabus came with a prophecy which was true, where he bound the Paul's hands and said with his own belt and said this was what will happen to the owner of this belt if you go to Jerusalem which was true because that's exactly what did happen to Paul but Paul went anyway and clearly that was what the Lord wanted him to do so we can begin to see why the operation of these gifts uh, especially prophecy and, and tongues uh, is rare or even non-existent in, in many churches today. Um, for instance, Paul instructs the church to, to have no more than three people to speak to the congregation in an unknown language, in a tongue, at, at, in any, on any one occasion. And then not at all if there is no one to interpret. It does seem to me that, um, that Paul is effectively saying, well, you know, unless unless you are, you know that there is someone here who can understand your your language that you speak, and can tell the congregation what it is, well then you are to keep quiet. I mean that's what that's what he says. And last week, Paul also said that um, that I would rather speak five words with my mind, in other words, in a language that you can understand, than ten thousand in a tongue. You know, that, that is even allowing for the fact that, that he's probably exaggerating a bit to, to make the point, that is a huge difference. If I, if I you know, held up a $5 note, does somebody want to swap me for 10000 Probably not. It's such a, it's such a big difference. It, it, seem, it does seem to me that Paul is effectively saying that the gift of tongues is useless in public worship, uh, unless someone is there who understands that language. But then... He finishes the chapter by saying we should not forbid speaking in tongues either. So 
if someone in our congregation believes that they have this gift of tongues and, and they know that there is someone to interpret and that the message they bring will build up the congregation and it will be good for the congregation, then we should encourage that. We should, certainly should not forbid it. And the same is true with prophecy. Uh, you know, even, even if it is just to speak out God's word by, by saying out loudly a, a, a line of scripture that will encourage us and build us up, uh, you know, our open prayer time would be a good occasion to do that. Uh, there, there, there's multiple lines of scripture I could think of where that would be an appropriate thing to say in the prayer time. In all these chapters, Paul clearly wants the gifts to be used for the building up of the church. But he wants it done decently and in order. Verse 40. We get the impression that he, he wrote this letter, the reason he wrote this letter is that the Corinthian church was anything but, that rather it was indecent and disorderly. We get the impression, in fact, that it was a complete rabble. Uh, you know, he, when he's talking about the gift of tongues, just he says, just do it one at a time, which sort of implies that they weren't doing it. Well, you know, the people were just talking over the top of each other and yelling things out. And uh, and the same, same with the, with prophecy. He says, that if a revelation comes to one who is seated, then the one who's speaking must sit down and be quiet. But it just sounds, we reading between the lines, it just sounds like the... The whole thing was a complete shamozzle where people were shouting over the top of each other and, uh, and it was anything but decently decent and in order. And so now we come to uh, verses 34 to 35. In all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is, a disgra it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, uh, John has conveniently left me to, uh, to preach on this bit. <laughs> you know, he gets, he get, technically he get, doesn't get out of isolation until this afternoon, but I think he could have actually... Yeah, made a, anyway. No, look, I, lo I, lo I love to preach on the word. On first impression, this appears to be saying that women can do nothing at all in church as far as speaking goes. Uh, so, you know, Catherine doing the children's talk, no. Even introducing a song or praying or reading the Bible, it, it appears on, on the surface to rule that out. But we know that this cannot be. How? Well, because back in 11, chapter 11, which was the, the chapter about hair, uh, Paul writes, any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Uh, you know, I'd love to go back and give you my take on, on, on what that's about. It, it's actually the only verse in the Bible where I'm right and John is less right. Um, <laughs> But anyway, that, that's beside the point. The point is that Paul is saying that women were praying and prophesying in the church and he says nothing against it. So clearly what he says here is not what it appears on the surface. Now, if you read 
conservative commentators of the Bible, and by that I mean ones who actually believe that the Bible is the word of God, uh, what most of them say is that Paul must be referring here to preaching in the congregation. Uh, that women are not to preach in the congregation. Uh, and we can go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which says virtually the same thing. That, 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 that Paul there uh, prohibits women from teaching in the church. Uh, and that, and it's because of those, particularly 1 Timothy, but also this one. Is that, that's the reason that we are a complementarian church. Um, we, we believe that men and women are not the same despite what the world is telling us at the moment, uh, that God created the man and woman separately and with different roles. It doesn't mean that women are inferior, just different. I mean, none of us likes being told that we can't do something. You know, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, especially if, if you're a woman who who loves the Bible um, and you have, have to endure some incompetent git standing up the front and boring everyone to death and getting it all wrong anyway. I can, I can, I, I can understand how frustrating that must be. You know, my sister Frances, is, um, she doesn't believe that women should preach but nonetheless she gets asked to do it all the time and so she kind of, kind of does it and kind of doesn't. Uh, most of you would agree with me that she's a very good speaker and she, she always keeps people interested and she's very biblical and, uh, and sound in what she says. Um, but nonetheless, she, she, she would never... She, she has come under a lot of pressure in the Anglican Church from, from the movement for the ordination of women. They say, well, why aren't you getting... You should be ordained. And she says, no, I'm not going to be ordained because that's, the Bible tells me I, I shouldn't do that even though she's good at it. But not all, not all men are preachers. Um, the church has to decide these things. That's, that's the job of the elders and the congregation based on the requirements of scripture. Look, the, the temptation is to lump this instruction in, in uh, chapter 14 into the, the cultural basket and say, well, we can see that the, ch the Corinthian church was a rabble and uh, women were probably using their new freedom to shout things out and so Paul has put that there just to, uh, to, just to tell them not to do it. And so therefore we can ignore this instruction. The, the problem with that argument is that in, in the equivalent verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives the reason why women shouldn't teach. And it's got nothing to do with the culture of the time. It goes back to the book of Genesis. Well, basically he says, well, man was made first and, 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 and it was the woman who was deceived by Satan. Now, whatever you may think of Paul's argument, you might think, well, that's not a very good argument, Paul. But that's not the point. This is what God has said in his word. And it's not our place to say, well, you got it wrong there, God. So I hope, I hope that's kind of cleared that one up a bit. If, you, if you're not happy with, with my explanation, well, I, I, I don't mind just continuing the discussion afterwards as long as we, we confine our discussion to what the scripture actually says. Clearly, the Corinthian church was a place of very gifted members. 
But for many of them, those gifts had become something that they boasted about and they were very proud of, to elevate themselves above their peers. It was kind of hierarchy of giftedness. They'd started well, they were obviously full of enthusiasm and life um, for this new freedom that they'd found in Christ, but they'd gone off the road. They'd, they'd taken a lot of side roads that led to dead ends and, and gone the wrong way. But the worst thing of all was their pride. They would consider themselves a cut above, even, even a cut above the other, the other churches that, in the early days of, uh, of, of the gospel. And so Paul admonishes them with a bit of sarcasm. Uh, same back in chapter 4, he, used the same, he did the same thing. Remember where he said, oh, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. It, he didn't really mean it. He was, he was being sarcastic. And so in verse 36 here today, he says, was it from you that the, Lord, uh, that the word of, the, of God came? Are you, only one, are you the only ones that has reached? Because that's the way they were behaving, as if, the, as if the, the, the gospel originated with them and that they had a monopoly on it. But if we keep reading into chapter 15 there, he, Paul starts off with, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. So it didn't originate with them. The Corinthians had already forgotten about the, the grace, the favour that they didn't deserve. The gospel that, that Paul preached to them. Look, people, pride is the great enemy of the gospel. If, if we become a church where some of us think that we're better than others, as obviously was happening in Corinth, then we are finished. We you know, kaput, we may as well, we may as well give up. We may, you know, we may have a good congregation, big congregation, we might be overflowing out the door. We might have this building all beautifully finished how we sort of dream of it being one day, but we would be dead. So that's kind of the the summary of, uh, of these chapters. In fact, Paul himself summarises what's been in these three chapters, a very convenient little summary right at the end there. He says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. So earnestly desire to speak God's words to other people, even if it's over, over morning tea and whatnot. If we can build each other up by reminding each other of, of what God has said, of what he's done for us, I think, I think that's prophecy. Um, earnestly desire to prophesy. That's a positive, isn't it? Earnestly desire to prophesy. But then he goes to a negative and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So it's kind of not quite such an enthusiastic as in endorsement as it is for, for prophecy. But all things should be done decently and in order. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Phil, for bringing the word to us today. And um, yeah, uh, 